So good afternoon everybody. My name's Martin Chrislieb and I work for the University of Oxford in their Department of Oncology. And what I want to try and do this afternoon is convince you that physics cures cancer. So I was asked to do three things, but this is where we're heading. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I got here and who I am. I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to cancer and I want to persuade you that lots of people are cured by physicists rather than by medics. So that's where we're going to try and wind up. So in the best traditions of talking about oneself, a few bits and pieces about me, I went to school in London, I did a bunch of GCSEs, I did maths and physics and chemistry and biology and I was reasonably good at them and I did some French and geography and English language and I was okay at them and I did some English literature which probably best not discussed in public. However, I went on, did some A-levels, I did maths and physics and chemistry and I was reasonably good at them. I applied to Cambridge and Durham universities. Cambridge said no and Durham said yes. So I did my A-levels and then decided that I wasn't going to take no for an answer so I pulled out and reapplied and this time both Cambridge and Durham said yes which was a bonus, so I sent Cambridge a letter saying yes please and then promptly left the country and I got a job teaching GCSE maths in Zimbabwe which is that little country just above South Africa and that was fairly amazing, I had an amazing year taught a load of maths, wandered all over South Africa, wandered up through Zambia and Malawi and Tanzania, so that was kind of fun in their school holidays. So I came back, went up to Cambridge and did natural sciences, so I did some more physics, some more maths, some more chemistry, tried geology, really loved geology, realised I was quite a lot better at chemistry than physics or maths, so dumped physics and maths, kept the chemistry, got to the end of my degree and realised that I was having far too much fun to leave and so didn't. So I stayed for another three years to do my doctorate and my PhD. Uh, three and a half years later got that and they told me I really did need to leave now. So I left both Cambridge and the country and I went to work just on the west coast of the United States on the shore of the Pacific Ocean at a place called Stanford University which is next to San Francisco and that was quite a lot of fun and then I got a job in Oxford and I came here to do some chemistry and I did some chemistry and I wound up doing chemistry making radioactive copper compounds and radioactive copper compounds are interesting because they are 
a way of, they're, they're a toolkit for making imaging techniques for cancer patients. So looking inside people, looking inside their tumours and asking how much oxygen is there. And that turns out to be really important. And as part of that project, I stepped sideways into the Department of Oncology and did, an, in total, about six years looking at ways of imaging tumours. And then the Department of Oncology grew big enough that they decided they wanted somebody to talk to the public about science because the public pay for it. So anybody who pays tax in the room, thank you very much. You fund our research through the Medical Research Council. And anybody who's ever given money to Cancer Research UK, again, thank you very much. You also are funding our research. So it's kind of important that we tell you what we did with the cash. And that's now my job, is that I do, I help people understand what we do and why it matters. Like most people who get paid to do science, I am essentially a professional geek. <laughs> Which essentially means I have a lot of fun doing science and getting paid for it, so it puts breakfast on the table. <laughs> but like most scientists, I'm not just a professional geek, so I do have some hobbies. So I quite like climbing up things, mainly walls, but occasionally rocks. And I quite like climbing up even bigger things. Uh, that's me standing on the top of the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And I quite like climbing up things, and I quite like climbing up things, and I quite like helping other people. People your age, in fact, have joined the Air Cadet organization, and I teach them to climb and teach them how to navigate and do their DV and all of that stuff. And occasionally I get to the cinema when I have any free time at all. So that's kind of how I got there. Not all of it's been planned, but it has been quite a lot of fun. And it's all come through making a decision at about 16 that I was going to keep studying science. A little bit about cancer. So this is the point where I'm going to get you a bit more involved so you don't just sit there looking at me. So pop quiz, question one. How long have we had cancer, do you think? When's, when, how long have people been getting cancer? Yeah, go at the back. Okay, so, so the vote at the back is for, from before Egyptian times. Sorry? A few years after humans existed at the top. 75 years. A long time. One more at the back. 70. 76. <laughs> Guys, oh, vote at the back. There are dinosaur skeletons that have been found that have passed over on the bones of cancer at the 
Okay. So the answers that go back a long way are essentially probably the right ones. It depends, the answer depends a little bit on what sort of record you want. We have a written record of cancer. So this is essentially a medical text from one of the pharaoh's doctors, written by a pharaoh's doctor about three and a half thousand years ago. And essentially the black bit is, the black writing is a description of a disease or a wound and the red bit is what you do about it and in there there's a description of cancer and next to it the red bit goes which describes how to treat it sort of goes don't know so not so helpful there but the description is of a disease that we're pretty sure is cancer the people who are talking about old bones are also right so we certainly have uh, human bones, this one happens to be from about 10,000 years ago. Uh, that has a tumour on the, on the bone. But the comment at the back about dinosaur bones, again, almost certainly right. Cancer is a disease of failed teamwork. Cancer is what happens when the cells in your body decide not to do their job and to be individuals. And so we've probably had cancer since we were multicellular beasts. So it must go back at least half a billion years. Pop quiz number two. What's an onk? <laughs> so my department, my department is called the Department of Oncology. Ology means study. What's an onk? Yeah, at the back. A word, no, it means something. It's not just a word I made up. Not a dinosaur. Sorry? Not a disease. Not radioactivity. Yeah? Sorry? No, I'm not an onk. Although studying me is obviously a worthwhile thing to do. Sorry? Not related to physics. Not a cell. Not an animal. Not quite. You're getting closer though. Can not quite cancer. Excellent. So 2,000 years ago, this guy, who was a Greek doctor called Herodotus, had, was treating patients and the patients had a lump on them. And so, not being a poet, he called the lump onkos, which is literally the Greek word for a lump. So when my department is called the Department of Oncology, we are the Department for Studying Lumps which turns out to be appropriate because almost all the work we do is on solid tumours. So we don't do a lot of work on lymphomas and leukaemias, we do a lot of work on solid tumours, the lumps that people find. And all the people who work in my department, they work to try and cure cancer, they work to make cancer medicine better, and they work in chemistry, 
they work in physics, they work in engineering, in biology, and in mathematics. And yes, some of them are even medics, but not very many. Almost all of the work we do is done by scientists. And what we're going to do is have a look at the difference a physicist can make. Why have I put a crab in that slide? Yes. Right, so, so it is the zodiac symbol for a cancer, but what has the zodiac symbol for cancer got to do with a disease? Guys? So, but why did we call the disease cancer? Why would we name a disease of lumps after crabs? <laughs> Sorry? No, not crabs don't have lumps. Almost. So the question was, do crabs have cancer? And the answer is, almost every living organism that has more than one cell has cancer. The only exception, for some weird reason that we don't get, is the blind mole rat. For some reason, blind mole rats don't seem to get cancer. Any more suggestions? No, crab... I think if crabs attack you, you just get bitten. Yeah, one at the top. Crabs can probably get cancer. So when Herodotus had his patients with their onkos, their lumps, when he cut the lump open, inside the lump it was full of blood vessels, and the blood vessels he thought looked like the legs of a crab, and so he called the disease carcinos which is the Greek word for a crab, and when it got translated into Latin, carcinos is cancer. So we call the disease after the crab because of the, some of the first descriptions have this idea of the legs of a crab. Okay, so we have patients who've got cancers, they've got lumps, they want rid of them, how does physics cure cancer? What branch of cancer medicine is physics? Yeah? Radiotherapy. Radiotherapy, absolutely. So lots of you will have maybe heard on the radio or seen in a newspaper or something the idea that someone's discovered a drug for cancer. You might even have heard of something called the Cancer Drugs Fund, which is designed to pay for new cancer drugs. And although you don't hear about it very often, actually radiotherapy and surgery, although they don't make the news, are responsible for the bulk of cures that we can deliver today. So something like 90% of people who get better from cancer will get better basically because of some combination of, of surgery and radiotherapy. That's not to say the drugs aren't important, but radiotherapy is a lot more important than people often realise, and it's because nobody makes a song and dance about it, nobody makes a fuss about it. We can cure cancer with radiotherapy. We can reduce pain, that's what palliate means. 
we can reduce pain with radiotherapy, we can make a tumour shrink to the point where surgery becomes possible, or we can clean up very tiny tumours where we wouldn't want to do surgery because the tumour is too small. We can kill those with, with radiotherapy. So radiotherapy is radiation therapy. In fact, the Americans call radiotherapy radiation therapy. So it might be worth having a quick think about radiation. What do we know about radiation? Yeah, at the top. Iron, sorry, say again. Okay, so we've got ionizing cells. We'll certainly come back to that in a minute. Yeah? Uh, yes, so Marie Curie discovered some of the first radioactive elements. Excellent. So we've got alpha, beta, and gamma radiation. What is radiation, though? What is the essence of radiation? Alpha and beta can't... Isn't that like, uh, like actual materials? And then gamma is like gamma rays. Yes. Still, you're, still, you're still getting a little bit technical. I just want a basic sense of what is radiation. So unstable atoms are one source of radiation, but I can build machines that make radiation as well. Yeah? Sorry? Something that can go through a solid. Actually, that's quite a good definition. Yeah? So heat waves are a form of radiation. Radiation doesn't have to be ionizing. Spread of particles, not necessarily, because some radiation... So some radiation is spreading particles, but some radiation is, like, light rays. Yeah? Is it not the movement of gas? Not the movement of gas. It's just a lot of energy. A lot of energy. Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're inching your way towards where I want us to be. Um, it can be. Essentially, what I want to get to is the idea that radiation is just traveling energy. So, in a bizarre sense, that cannonball is a form of radiation. What I've done is I've, packed it, I've taken that lump of metal and I've shoved it down the barrel of this cannon on top of a bunch of gunpowder. And gunpowder is essentially just energy waiting to happen. And then I'm going to, because it's sort of fun, I'm going to set fire to the gunpowder I'm going to set fire to the gunpowder, it's going to go bang, and it's going to pack it, it's going to deliver a load of energy into that cannonball and spit it out the mouth of that cannon. And so what that cannonball is going to do is it's going to fly, and in flying what it's doing is carrying a bunch of packaged energy until it reaches its target. When it reaches its target, it's going to deliver that energy in the form of an impact which is going to uh, destroy whatever it was, hit a wall, whatever. So really, what I'm looking for here is the idea that radiation is just packaged energy that's allowed to travel. 
and two or three people mentioned, and they were absolutely right, there are a number of different types of radiation. They mentioned alpha and beta. Alpha radiation is, is, is essentially a helium atom. Beta is an electron. But actually, there are other types of radiation that are solids. You can fire protons. You can fire neutrons. You can fire anything, basically, that looks like a small cannonball. And that's essentially what these things are. They're small cannonballs, very small cannonballs. We'll come, to, we'll come to that, yes. So, these things are basically like cannonballs, very, very small cannonballs. And like cannonballs, the, harder, the bigger the bang that you use to shoot it with, the faster it travels, the more energy, more of an energy packet that it carries with it. So, essentially, these things, energy is speed. The more energy, the faster. You're not allowed to do that with electromagnetic radiation. Einstein got quite excited about that idea. The speed of light is a constant. So in order to package more energy into a gamma ray or an X-ray or any light, you have to change its color. So blue light has more energy than red light. If you package even more energy in, you'll push it into the ultraviolet. If you put more energy in, you'll push it out to the X-rays and gamma rays. But essentially, frequency or color is a measure of the amount of energy you've stuffed into that packet. Now, you can't just take a patient with cancer and stuff them in front of an X-ray gun and press the big red button. People get excited about that, and then you go to jail. So what we need to do is we need to be able to calculate exactly how much radiation we want to put and calculate exactly where to put it. And so that means we need a measure for radiation. Or in this case, a measure of absorbed radiation, the dose you deliver. And that dose, that, that, that unit was given, a, given to us by this guy, his name is Hal Gray. And so we call the unit of radiation, the unit of, of dose, the gray. And it turns out that if you go to hospital and you get some radiation therapy or radiotherapy, you'll be given normally something like 60 to 70 gray of radiation. But you don't give that to somebody all in one dose, because if you gave that to somebody all in one dose, they'd get quite sick. So what we normally do is we split that up into two gray chunks and so someone will come in and have two gray of radiation therapy, and then they'll go home and they'll come back. And they'll come, they'll come to hospital every day for about 35 days and get about two gray for each day's dose. So, which kind of raises the question, what on earth does a gray look like? And I, one way of doing that is to ask, what would happen if I put two gray of radiation therapy into a Coke can? What would happen if I put a Coke can in front on my radiotherapy machine and press the button? Yeah? Explode. Explode. Yeah, that would be quite a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah that would be a worthwhile experiment just to watch it go bang. <laughs> so we've got a vote for explode. We've got a vote for implode. It would burn. Fizz up a bit. 
absolutely nothing. So we've got a range of... So one of the things that you could ask one of your physics teachers to do, and they won't thank me for this, is actually show you how to calculate what would happen. So a can of Coke is mostly water, which is nice because human beings are mostly water, right? So 330 mils of water in a can of Coke, plus or minus 21 spoonfuls of sugar. Two grey would raise the temperature of that Coke can by 0.0004 degrees Celsius, which is a slightly weird number. So actually, if I put the can of Coke in the radi radiotherapy machine and I press the button for 1,000 grey, which would almost certainly kill a human being in one dose, I would raise the temperature by my, of my Coke can by half a degree Celsius. Pathetic. So nothing at all was the right answer. <laughs> Which is really interesting because what that's saying to you is that whatever I'm doing to the tumour, I'm not heating it. So what am I doing? What is the radiation? The radiation must be damaging something or I wouldn't be able to damage the tumour. What is the radiation damaging? Yeah. Slicing it off at the atomic scale, not really, yeah? Freezing, no. Mm, not atoms. I am breaking up something at the top. Sorry? Not nerve endings on the end at the top. Sorry? I am damaging the living cells, how? Destroying the cell wall? I am, but what am I giving too much energy? I've got this little packet of energy which is travelling and it's hitting the cell. What does, it, what does it encounter? What's the first... What is the most common thing for that energy to come across inside a human cell? Yeah, the top? Mutating. You can cause mutations with radiation. What's that, what's that packet of energy going to encounter? What's the most common thing that it finds? Uh, DNA. No, there's not that much DNA in a cell. I mean, it's quite a long strand, but it's not the most common thing it's going to find. Yeah? Water. Water. This packet of energy, which I've aimed at a tumour, is not, I mean, it might find some DNA, but there's tiny amounts of DNA in your cells and potloads of water. And so almost all the radiation that you fire at a cell winds up breaking the bond between hydrogen and oxygen in water molecules. And that leaves behind a proton. It's a little bit of acid, but your cells have seen that before. They can cope with that. And it leaves this thing, and this thing is called a hydroxyl radical. It's an oxygen atom with a hydrogen and this rather lonely-looking electron. And those hydroxyl radicals are really not very nice. And one of the things that they're really good at doing is breaking DNA. So whoever said damaging DNA, you're right, but it's not a direct effect. Radiation breaks water and the broken water breaks DNA.
and a cell with broken DNA has two choices, fix it or die. And it turns out that cancer cells are quite vulnerable to this because cancer cells are constantly trying to divide. And if you want to divide, you have got to copy your DNA and you cannot copy broken DNA. If you try to copy broken DNA, you die. So when we do radiotherapy, what we're trying to do is cause so much DNA damage in cancer cells that they can't fix it in time and they die. Does that make sense? Somebody over here, I think, somewhere said, if you use radiation, don't you damage everything? And that is essentially the challenge. Because radiation doesn't distinguish between healthy cells and cancer cells. Radiation damages everything it passes through. So, if I have my patient here, not looking very pleased with life, and I have a tumour here, if I throw some radiation at that tumour, I'm going to cause some damage to that tumour. That's good. We're happy with that but I'm also going to cause some damage on the way in and I'm going to cause some damage on the way out. So the challenge for the physicists is how do I cause damage to the tumour whilst causing as little damage as possible to the healthy tissue. And I've got a nice way of illustrating this, I think. And what I need to do is introduce you to a patient. So here's our patient. Does anybody recognise our patient? Yeah? It is a mouse. So this is an x-ray scan of a computer mouse. And what you might know is that x-rays pick out bones because they're hard and dense and they don't really pick out the soft tissue. So here what you've got is the x-rays are picking out the circuit board, the metal bits inside the mouse, but they're not picking out very well the plastic bits. And a physicist can use the difference between the metal bits and the plastic bits to calculate how the x-rays are travelling through the mouse. And if we can do that, we can calculate what sort of energy we might deposit if we shone radiotherapy at this mouse. So, the aim of the game is to, we've just picked on this little bit here, this thing shaped like a croissant, and we're going to pretend that that's our tumour. Actually, it's a little bit of metal, but we're going to pretend that's our tumour. And we're going to ask a computer, which has been programmed with a whole load of physics, to, to help us calculate what can we do to that tumour. And the computer says, well, let's try shining a beam down from this top direction. And we're going to shine the beam through. And the amount of radiation which I've deposited is dark red means I've lots of radiation has been deposited there. Yellow means about the right amount to kill that tumour. And the blue colour is really not very much radiation. Does anybody think, is this a good plan or a bad plan? Bad. Why? 
Right. Right, so it's a bad plan, and it's a bad plan because you can see we've put lots of radiation here, and this is healthy tissue. This is not the thing we wanted to treat. Can anyone think of how I might change this plan to make it better? So I could change the arrow the other way. That would certainly make it a better plan. Can anyone think of a cunning trick that would make it even better than that? So I could, I could shine it from out here, but remember that this isn't a 2D mouse. It's, it's got 3D as well. So although you can't see it on this picture, there's actually stuff in front of the screen as well. How could I make it a better plan than, yeah, at the top? So I can change the colour by reducing the intensity of this beam. I could shine a less bright beam at it. That would reduce the colour everywhere, but it would still mean more energy going into healthy tissue than into the tumour. How do I make this an even better plan? Yeah, at the back? Fire it at lots of different angles. Perfect. If I fire two beams in opposite directions, can you see we've kept the colour the same in the tumour, but I've hugely reduced the dose to healthy tissue. Still not a great plan, but it's better. Three beams, can, and again, we've kept the same dose to the tumour, but the healthy tissue is now getting much less dose. And then we have to play another slightly clever trick. If you imagine, if you imagine looking at your phone, your phone isn't a sphere, it's not like a ping pong ball. If I want to shine a beam at my phone, the shape that I need the beam to be depends on the angle I look at the phone from, right? And the same is true of tumours. Tumours don't come fitted as standard, looking like ping-pong balls. They're funny shapes. This one looks like a croissant, for heaven's sake. So it's really important... It's really important that I shape my beam. And it turns out that I have a way of doing this. I can put this thing between the patient and the gun that fires the x-rays. And this thing is called a multi-leaf collimator. And it kind of does what it says on the tin. It shapes the column of the beam by using lots of little metal leaves. And each one of these little metal leaves is independently controllable. And if you ever make friends with a radiotherapist and they feel inclined to show off, they can draw their initials with these things. And, the sh and, these and each one of these leaves will move according to a computer program that knows what shape the tumour is when viewed from that angle. And you can see one, you can see here someone's knee and they've just shone a light beam through it. And here we have a real, a real tumour and you can see that if we just use 
standard blocky rectangular beams, I get quite a lot of dose in my tumour, but I have lots and lots of dose that's spilling outside into healthy tissue. But if I shape the beam with one of those collimators, so here the beam has two high intensity bits but separated out by a low intensity bit, you can see that although there is a little bit of dose outside the, the critical region, you can see all of this stuff has gone and the shape of the radiation is much closer shaped to the tumour. So let's go back to my mouse, because that's what we were looking at. And we can continue to experiment with our beams. Here you've got a three-beam plan, but different angles. I've got a five-beam plan. Not so keen on that, because we've got a bit of stuff out here. Uh, and finally, a seven-beam plan. And can you see now that I've dumped loads of radiation into the tumour, so that tumour's got a good chance of being killed off, but I've got almost no radiation into the healthy tissue, and that means that patients have fewer side effects for the same amount of tumour control. Okay. So that's just the place where I work, but it's there to tell me that it's time to shut up. The people who do this work the people who do this research and the people who deliver the radiation in the, in the clinic are physicists. They've got degrees in physics, some of them have got PhDs in physics. A doctor can tell you where he'd like the radiation or where she'd like the radiation, but only a physicist can deliver it. Any questions? Okay. So, go and do some physics because physics cures cancer. Thank you, guys.